Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to be Seattle, and Jim and Beard of Falconer of Seattle. Just a heads up, this episode has a lot of adult language and a little bit of stand-up comedy. All right, y'all. I hope you're having a wonderful night. It's going to be a dope night tonight. Please give it up all the way from Olympia, my man, Sam Miller. You guys see me miss that mic stand? I'm fucking killing it. I'm from Olympia. I'm doing pretty good. I'm Scott Greenstone, a reporter with the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. This is Outsiders. I'm taking over for Will James for this episode. And we have something a little different for you this episode. We're we're not investigating policy or big structural forces that shape millions of people's lives. We're just telling the story of one person, one man, and his journey into and out of homelessness in Olympia. His name is Sam Miller. And he's a comedian. <laughs> Let me see. How many of y'all have seen me do comedy before? A few people here are good, then I don't feel bad about what I'm about to do. Uh, this is from a comedy show in Seattle. My name's, uh, my name's Sam Miller. I'm from Olympia, Washington. I'm six foot six. I'm 360 pounds. I've been married eight years. I got two kids. One of them's on purpose. And... And I've been clean and sober for 11 years. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes people ask me, they'll be like, Sam, what was it like? Uh, Why did you stop drinking and doing drugs? And I just show him this tattoo. He lifts his shirt up, and he's got a massive tattoo across his stomach. That tattoo says, let's dance. If you... Want to know if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol? Look at your belly. What does your tattoo say? Because my shit says, let's dance. Which makes zero sense because I've never enjoyed or partaken in any dancing. I should have gotten a tattoo that's like, hey, Scott, you think it's too late to call your cousin about that crystal? Sam was homeless in downtown Olympia in the late 2000s, about a decade before the events of our series. And like we've heard, a lot of people are homeless for a lot of reasons, but Sam says he was homeless because of just one, his addiction to alcohol and methamphetamine. His story is pretty familiar at first glance. It starts with, I did drugs, then I did so many drugs I became homeless, then I hit rock bottom and I finally changed my life and got out. That's the story we hear a lot. But the reason I wanted to tell Sam's story is not because it's familiar, and it's not even because he's funny, although he is funny. I wanted to tell Sam's story because there's a twist. And what he'd like people to take away from it is fundamentally different than the I hit rock bottom and changed my life story. In fact, Sam changed the way I think about drugs and homelessness and how those two things are connected. My name's Sam Miller. I'm from Olympia, Washington. I'm uh, formerly homeless. Been clean and sober for 11 years. Got two kids. Married. 
do stand-up comedy. Uh, I work with young people. A lot of those young people are experiencing housing instability. Yeah, I'm doing really good, and I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm 51.6% happy. So <laughs> That's more than half. Hell yeah, it's more than a lot of people. I'm doing <laughs> all right, man. <laughs> Why do you say 51.6%? Uh, I don't know. That's just where I think I'm at. I like putting numbers on things. I like to when I work with youth and stuff like that, and I think that I can do something, but I'm not sure if I can do something. If I have a young person, I was like, hey, man, I think I can get you a bus pass tomorrow. Uh, I'm not sure if I can, but I'd say I'm like 73%, and I just give them the number that I think it is. I say that I'm 73% sure that I can get you a bus pass tomorrow. I hate it when adults uh, lie to young people. I hate it when adults lie to anybody. Like, do you feel like adults kind of lied to you a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, I don't think I caught them, but I know they were. <laughs> so... My uh, my dad was a real piece of work. He was lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. He drank a lot, and uh, everything was everybody else's fault all the time. And I believed it most of the time. He died when I was 12, and then I just kept learning and learning more and more about, like, who he was. Good stuff and, like, a lot of bad stuff, too, you know. So I don't think he was really honest with me. I think my mom tried to be honest with me. But I, I don't think anybody really understood, like, uh, the danger that I was in at the time. The danger? Um, of addiction, yeah. Of just how with my family history uh, combined with, like, the trauma of my father being my father and then my father dying, like, those two things combined. And the, uh, the what's it, what do you call it? The pump was primed. When did you first start using substances? Man, it's hard to say. Like, there's a picture of me drinking a beer when I was like six or seven years old. And like, Whoa. Uh, I know, I know. It was like kind of like a joke. I remember it just kind of being around. Uh, I also distinctly remember my dad getting mad at me for, I was always like into inhalants and like started messing with that at like a really young age. Inhalants? Yeah, like sniffing gas and huffing gas and like markers and glue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Once I realized that, like, there was something outside of myself that could change the way I felt, that was, like, a pretty big deal to me. Because I did not feel good. <laughs> I was scared of a lot of stuff, but mostly my dad. And then when he died, then I was, uh, I was scared of everything else. Because, like, he was a maniac, but he was my maniac, and he kept me safe. And then, uh, and then he was gone, and then it was a big world. And uh, I didn't feel like I belonged. I feel like I needed something to like catch up or something to drop out. I don't know which one. I think it was different directions I was trying to go. The first time I got like, like really high, I was in junior high and I smoked some weed out of a pop can with matches behind the school. And uh, it just, everything, it's just like, it just snapped. Like, this is it. I figured it out. I felt like a detective that just solved, like, the biggest case. Oh, like, everybody who's happy is, like, high. From that point on, like, from the first second I used, I, I must have been, like, 13 or 14 or whatever, my goal was to feel good. And the only way I knew how to do that was drugs and alcohol. And that's what I did. The moment Sam used substances, that's a turning point. But there was an even bigger turning point a year or two later. I believe I was a sophomore at Timberline High School. 
and I was prescribed Ritalin for my ADHD or whatever. But I didn't like Ritalin. I liked uh, I liked weed. And so what I would do is I would put the Ritalin under my tongue, go to the bathroom after I saw the nurse. I'd wrap the Ritalin in some toilet paper, and I'd trade it to friends for either a little bit of money or a little bit of weed. I did that with a friend of mine. We were both in ISS together in school suspension, and he wanted to snort the Ritalin, and he didn't have a dollar or anything. So I uh, broke apart a Bic pen tube so he could snort the Ritalin. The ISS teacher saw me handing him that tube, assumed that we were both snorting Ritalin, even though I wasn't snorting Ritalin. It doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm still like defending myself. Like like 20 <laughs> years later, I'm like, I wasn't snorting Ritalin. I was selling Ritalin. <laughs> like, listen. Uh, but anyway, the next day, I'm in Mr. Atwell, who's like my favorite teacher. He had this Western Civ class, probably the only class that I was really like into. I'm sitting in his class, and then our school resource officer, Officer Brooks, walked in, and uh, Sam Miller, you know, and I turned around, and he arrested me in front of everybody. They take me to the office, and they searched me, and I had, like, uh, I had some weed on me, and and I was still, like, being really tough, just being like, screw you, like, this is BS, it wasn't even legal to search me, like, I was, you know just run in my mouth and then my mom came in and I fell apart I just didn't want to hurt her and I knew that like this was this was hurting her a lot and uh it's one of the most painful moments of my life I didn't like the cops I didn't like the schools I love my mom but uh we weren't uh we weren't on the same page and uh I felt like my mom the school and the cops were on a team and I was on a team and uh, I didn't choose the teams. All of them had one idea about what should happen, and that's that I should stop using drugs and that my issue is that I'm using drugs. But the issue was so much more severe than that, you know. I was just in so much pain, like, and the drugs were the only thing that made me feel okay. And that's the thing is that, like, it was never about, like, getting high. It was just I just wanted to feel okay. And from that point on... It was balls to the wall. Like, I'm going to get as high as I can, as much as I can. Can I swear? Yeah. Yeah, at that point, it's just like, fuck you. Let's fucking do it then. Fine. I'll play. I'll play too. Let's dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's dance. <laughs> That's funny. And after that, my substance use changed. I started doing harder drugs. I, I used to work for the United States Forest Service. I was a wildland firefighter for two years. I just like saved houses all the time. I'm like a hero, it's cool. Don't clap though, it's weird if you clap because then it seems like I want you to. And uh, you're out for two weeks and you get a bunch of overtime and then you're back for two days. And I'd go back out for two weeks straight, working 14 days straight, 16 hour days. It's wild, with hazard pay. I left the Forest Service and I had 17,000 motherfucking dollars in the bank, right? $17,000. And I went to upstate New York and I spent it on coke in a month and a half. And that's when I got a tattoo that said, let's dance. Because at that point, I was never gonna run out of money, I was never gonna run out of cocaine, and I was never gonna stop dancing. But it kills me, $17,000. That refrigerator my wife wants, $1,000, right? I snorted fucking 17 refrigerators. <laughs> you know what I mean? When did, when did it go from you had a job, you had a life, and you had a house, specifically? Yeah. When did it go, nope, no more of that? 
Uh, I had friends that, that, that lived up the street and I feel like we were all either like a little bit homeless or like almost homeless. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, we were all like kind of couch surfing and like we were staying at these houses and it was like, do I live here? Like who lives here? Can I sleep on your porch? Like, am I homeless? And then like my mom would take me back in sometimes and uh, I would stay with her and then I'd go back out, go downtown. What would you do downtown? I'd drink, get high. Uh, I don't know. It's weird because it's my first night out, like sleeping on the streets. I was in the bars, but all the bartenders were pissed at me because like I got caught because I would pick up other people's drinks and, and drink them. And I guess they, they frown on that. Um, it was like 2 a.m. and I was like, oh, crap. I don't have any place to go. And I just walked. It was like 2 a.m. and I was like, I was just walking and I, I was just like, crap, I'm so tired. And I had this hoodie and uh, I curled up in this doorway downtown. And uh, and that was that. And then um, there was this guy and everybody called him the flower dude. And he hung out downtown Olympia and he... Uh, he would get the flowers from like Thriftway that they threw away and he would like go downtown and sell them. And that was like his little hustle. He was a really good guy and we were really close. And I woke up and he had like drawn a circle in chalk around me that said, keep Sam safe. And that just broke me too. Uh, I know it's weird even looking back at it now, like it seems like this corny kind of like thing but it meant a lot to me that he did that. But I remember waking up and just crying and just just being scared, you know? Like I didn't wanna, I never felt like I was all the way homeless until that point where I was like, crap, like my mom doesn't want me around. Like, this is bad. Like this is, this is, this is trouble. Your, your mom said, don't, don't come around anymore. Yeah, she wouldn't have me at the house if I was using and I wasn't going to stop using, uh, yeah. Sam says he was what he considers truly homeless for a little over a year. The whole time he and his mom were in this dance, he'd try to go home and act like he'd stopped using that he'd changed, but it wouldn't last. He'd go back to drinking and drinking would lead to crystal meth. I came home a couple times and like, okay, like, like I was trying to hide it and then uh and then I knew I couldn't hide it anymore. And then June 9th, 2008, I went down there and I was like I'm going to drink this is, this is the last time. And I knew it wasn't going to be the last time, but I still like to feel like that. I was going downtown getting high, uh same old same old. And I was in my buddy Mike's apartment and we were we were we were we were using uh like crystal or whatever and then, uh, I don't know, I went, must have went back outside. And then I I woke up under a tarp in downtown Olympia. And I was, like, having sex with this homeless lady under this tarp. I peeked my head out because it was getting to be daytime. And I peeked my head out and I saw this lady walking her dog. And, uh, yeah, and then something snapped in my head. The thought that I had at that point was that I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. 
I walked to my mom's house. I was crying the whole way. I was just terrified. And she opened the door and I told her that I didn't want to be a drunk anymore. And uh, she didn't believe me. I know she didn't believe me, but I knew something was different. And then for like three or four days, I just kind of, I was really sick and uh, really terrified. And I just kind of stayed in this room and then and then I sought help after that. And I got help. Uh, it was so hard. Though I felt like the whole world was just so fast and bright and like, and uh, I, I, it was a struggle to relate. I was still getting into fights sometimes, and I was really suicidal for the first year. Like four months sober, I almost wanted, I, I wanted to die, and 11 months sober, I wanted to die. You know? It's like you yeah. think you, I thought I figured it out. And then it, and then it turned on me. And then I was, uh, just terrified. I'm washing dishes and working at a warehouse and bouncing. I had three jobs for a minute. Just trying to like, just figure out how to make the world work. And, uh, it got easier. I, I'm part of a support group that's, uh, changed my life and given me new tools. And I have not used the mind altering substances outside of caffeine since then. So it's been 11 years now. When I said there was a twist in this story, this is what I mean. Sam once looked like a lot of the other unsheltered people struggling with addiction in Olympia. But he was different from them in one important way. He came from a middle-class background. And most of the people he was with on the streets, they didn't. To Sam, there are different types of poverty. He calls his situational. And that's different from poverty that's generational. Situational poverty is when you experience something that, that, that causes you to uh, experience poverty, basically. So that's when you like like natural disasters, addiction, like a health emergency, like a layoff or whatever. But the thing about situational poverty is it generally like you have more of a support structure around you because you know a lot of people that aren't also in poverty. So like if somebody loses their job, it's like, oh, well, Scott's cousin says that this place is hiring and you can stay with your uncle for a while and then you know what i'm saying versus generational poverty which is a lot of what i deal with 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 my job now and uh a lot of what i was around when 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 i was on the streets and stuff like that and that's where it's a it's a history of poverty and it's tougher it's way tougher because little things that you wouldn't even think of like that I had access to that I learned that other people didn't have access to, you know, like even something as simple, like it's like going to my mom's house. Not only did I have a place to go, I had a place to go where I knew that I would be okay if I could just stay clean. And that's the thing about like now, like professionally, like where I'm at, like if I have somebody who wants to get sober, it's not that simple. Like people do it all the time and they can do it. But, uh, it's so complicated, especially if you're experiencing like that generational poverty, you know, if you don't, you know, even finding uh, like finding other folks that are sober can be tricky at times, you know, and finding a place to stay where you're not going to be around drug and alcohol use can be tricky. But people do it, you know, because, you know, they you, you have to, you know, you have to. 
I can't stop thinking about that critical moment when Sam woke up under the tarp and decided to quit. He walked back to his mom's house crying, and she opened the door. Sam sees that is the key to his whole story. He had a house to walk back to. And I wonder how many people have that same exact moment of clarity, but they just don't have anywhere to walk back to. The moment comes and goes. I want to leave you with one last picture of Sam. It's him by a river with his son just a few years ago. My kid Buddy, we went down to the river and... Uh, his name is Buddy. Yeah, I couldn't think of nothing. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. You took him down the river? Took him down, here, down to the river. I'm like, I'm, I was on the 4th of July and I think it was, I was three or four years sober. And I was all excited because I was like, it's a beautiful spot at the river. It's down at Tumwater Falls Park. And uh, it's like 74 and the wind was blowing, little puffy clouds. And all of a sudden, I got really scared because my kid, you know, he's a lot like me, just a lot of energy, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, man, he's going to he's gonna jump in the river. like Because there's like a bunch of waterfalls right there. And I was like, oh, man, I was having this relaxing, beautiful day. He's going to jump in the river. But he sat down on the rocks on this little beach, and then I sat down next to him, and he started throwing little rocks into the water. And I felt the wind on my face, and, and I felt like I was going to be okay. And that's the first time I ever felt that in my life without substances. From that point on, it's been a lot easier, because like generally, I feel like I'm going to be okay. So when I say like 51.6% happy, when it when I dip below that and I'm, I'm not feeling good, I remember sitting by the river and I know that that's the possibility. Next, on Outsiders, we're back in present day Olympia. And there's a piece of this story we haven't talked about at all yet. And it's kind of crucial how people who live in homes in Olympia, how the housed population is responding to all this homelessness. Turns out it's forcing some people to totally reconsider their politics. Outsiders is a collaboration between KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. Before I let you go, I wanted to tell you about an event in Seattle that we're doing on March 3rd, 2020 at Town Hall Seattle. It's called Inside Outsiders, what one city can teach us about homelessness. All of us will be there answering questions about how we made the podcast and why and what we learned. So come join us. You can get tickets at outsiderspodcast.org. This episode was reported and written by me, Scott Greenstone, with some help from Will James. Our editors are Aaron Hennessy and Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Additional editing by Anna Sussman. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Viana Davila, my editor at Project Homeless, and my colleague, Sydney Brownstone. And also to KNKX Director of Content, Matt Martinez, Digital Content Manager, Kari Plog, and Adrian Flores, who designed our logo. Special thanks to Ramon Dompor at the Seattle Times for producing a beautiful video of Sam. You can see it at outsiderspodcast.org. And also... Special thanks to the Joke Tellers Union at the Clock Out Lounge for recording Sam's stand-up. 
I'm Scott Greenstone. Thank you for listening.